Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 11 and faith or flight. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it is binding on our lives that it is for every phase and every stage of our lives, and that it's trustworthy, and that behind the Word of God is a God who will never lie. It's a God that we can trust, because His character, your character, Lord, is trustworthy. It's it's good. You're holy. You're majestic. You're, you're glorious. And so, Lord, may these... May these truths penetrate into our hearts, into our minds as we consider this text before us, and may it stabilize us in a culture that is is shifting sands. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and that it's true, and that we can stand on all that it says, because behind it is you, Lord. And you are a God who your word says never lies. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So, Lord, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are an unchanging God. You are a holy God, a majestic God. So, Lord, open our eyes and ears to hear what you would have to say to us today through this text in Psalm 11. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 1 says this, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? (coughs) Let's start over there. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. Bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of our God. In Psalm 11, David declares his confidence in God while the world seems to be falling apart. David's friends look around and they're fearful. They wonder what should they do? After all, they reason, verse 3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
Many, many Christians today are like David's anxious friends. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can, what can Christians do when same-sex marriage is rising like a storm surge of, of, to flood our nation? The 2012 election marked a, a new high watermark, and the New York Times reported, Gay rights advocates savored multiple victories on Wednesday with the first election victories for same-sex marriage in Maine, Maryland, and Minnesota. The election in Wisconsin of the nation's first openly gay senator and the re-election of President Obama, who had taken a risk by endorsing same-sex marriage. It was truly a milestone year, said Chad Griffin, the president of the Human Rights Campaign, which raised millions of dollars for this year's campaigns. We had success across the board and across the countries. Now, we as Christians don't see much to celebrate in these so-called victories. We know from Scripture that God created marriage to be between one man and one woman for life under God. And this marriage between one man and one woman is to reflect his committed love for his people. Heterosexual marriage is one of the basic building blocks God established for human society. And many are asking today what verse 3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What, what can we do when murdering children in the womb is called health care? Obamacare forces Americans to participate in the barbaric spread of abortion. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops released their analysis around the time of this Obamacare came out of their of this new health care law, saying this, though their tax tax dollars, all tax taxpayers will be forced to subsidize overall health plans that cover election abortion, elective abortions, contrary to the policy of the Hyde Amendment and every other major federal program. Many of these Americans will also be forced to pay directly for other people's abortions. The courts have not been friendly to Christians who are forced to violate their, their conscience. Several dozen Christian groups sued the Department of Health and Human Services because the law requires to provide insurance for the morning-after pill. A federal judge threw out their lawsuit. Children will continue to be killed in our land in the name of health care and even women's rights. What about caring for the health of the unborn women? If we follow our present trajectory, outright infanticide is not far behind. Even though we've seen Roe versus Wade overturn, we are going to need to see the states step up and the state decide what direction individual states, all 50 states, we're going to need to see each state make a decision on where they're going to stand on the matter. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do, we might ask. We go on and on. Voters in Washington and Colorado have approved ballot initiatives in the last recent years to legalize marijuana, recreational marijuana. Pornography is all over the internet. It corrupts grade school boys, junior high boys, along with adult men, and also women. At one time, it was considered shameful to have a baby out of wedlock. As of 
2012, one statistic says that more than half of the children born to women under 30 occur outside marriage. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then we see this agenda on sexuality outside of marriage, going into the schools and infiltrating the schools and impacting children as, as early as elementary school, school age. But dear friends, we as Christians have a God who never changes. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 9, the writer of Hebrews tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We call this the immutable character of God. Furthermore, in Titus 1, 2, God's word tells us that God never lies. God's word is unchanging because behind the Bible is the God who never changes. That means that, that God is consistent. He's consistent with his word and he stands behind every word of the 66 books that are in the Bible. Every word, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, every book is there because the Holy Spirit wanted it to be there, and he inspired every single word. That means that the, that the Bible is reliable, it's trustworthy, it's without error, it's without the possibility of error, it's for every stage and every phase of our lives, it's binding on our lives, and it's clear. God's word has something to say about these matters, and it also has something to tell us about our times today because we can be tempted to fear psalm 11 is david's answer to the panic that gripped his friends when the foundation of their society seemed to be crumbling much like ours is today god's people have a choice between flight or between faith david's response was to take refuge in god and keep doing what is right and what accords with godliness in the word of god this needs to be our response as well as we seek to take Psalm 11 and apply it to ourselves. We'll look at David's temptation in verses 1 through 3 and David's foundation in verses 4 through 7. Now, Psalm 11, it opens with David's temptation to doubt the Lord in a time of turmoil. We're, we're not sure when David wrote this psalm exactly. We don't have an exact time frame. Well, one the, the thing that we the thing that we know is that David did write it. And that we're supposed to understand what it means. And that this psalm is not talking about us running physically away. We're supposed to read this as more broadly as a temptation to uh, to abandon the place God has appointed for us. Because of the onslaught of evil, God had anointed David to be king. His friends counseled him to, to forget his calling and save himself. Fly like a bird, they said. In the same way, God has given us a role in this world. He tells us to be salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14-16. Jesus commanded us to make disciples who make disciples of the nation. And so 
The temptation to fly away means abandoning the work that God has called us to do. And in his providence, where he has placed us for our good and for the good of others. David met this temptation with a confident refusal to abandon the place that God had put him. He couldn't believe that his friends were suggesting this. In verse 1, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? The word flee here is plural, as is the pronoun your. This advice was being given to all of God's people. A rising tide of fear and despair was sleeping through Israel. So this was like a hurricane evacuation. Everybody run to your place of refuge. Run. Run to your mountain. But instead of running away, David chose to find his refuge in God. By faith, David knew that God was near. A strong wall to protect him, to care for him. He would not surrender to unbelief. He would not deny God by giving into panic and running away from the place that God had called him to be as the anointed king. And we shouldn't think that this was an easy decision for David. David felt this temptation deeply. It tugged at him when he was vulnerable. To make it even more tempting, the people counseling him to flee were were probably his friends. Their advice appealed to his deepest needs, desires, and wants, and hopes. And on the surface, they said what made sense. Verse 2 says, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. You see, the godly were in clear and present danger. David's friends described the danger in graphic terms. If an archer had knocked an arrow on the string, he is ready to shoot. And once he bends his bow... He can hold the string so long before his arms shakes and his fingers give way. The godly are in imminent danger from the violence of the wicked. Like assassins, evil men are hiding in the shadows, ready to strike when God's people can't even see it coming. The treachery was destroying the very foundations, the very structure of society. And so David's friends concluded that there is nothing left to do but throw in the towel and concede defeat. Verse 3 says, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? This is a counsel of despair. The godly are helpless, they say. There's nothing anyone can do. Whatever we had is gone. Why waste your life in a hopeless crusade? Why build on the shifting sand of our world? Why try to plow the sea? Better to give up and run away, David's friends say. But that's the, that's the coward's way. In fact, We need to say that this is a timeless temptation. Jesus was tempted with the the same advice to run away from the danger that the Lord had appointed for his life. Some Pharisees came up to him and said in Luke uh, 13, 31, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus would not be moved, and he answered this way in Luke 11, 32-34, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finished my course, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away. Even Jesus' disciples advised him to turn away from the work that God had for him to do. And when Jesus set off for Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, John eleven seven 7-8 says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, 
The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And later, when the when the Jesus told his disciples clearly that he must be killed and rise again, Peter tried to speak some sense to him in Matthew 16, 22 through 23. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him, saying this, Get behind me, Satan. And if Jesus had followed the counsel of despair, he would have left the path that God laid out for him and would not have died as our Savior. Humanly speaking, what good could come from the death of Jesus? But he, but he trusted God, and through the faithful obedience of Christ, we are saved. See, those who follow Christ today must hear the same counsel of despair. We are told today to abandon the work that God has called us to do because the situation is dire, as I outlined at the opening, and it seems hopeless. The foundations are destroyed, they say. You can't hold back the tide. You can't change anything. Don't waste your time then. Get yourself and your family out of danger. Move out of the United States. Do whatever you can to do it. Move out of whatever state you're in. Move to a different state. How do people flee like a bird today? Psalm 11.1 says. Some are spiritual survivalists who flee physically. They move away from civilization. They live off the grid, moving to remote areas to get away from a world that seems to be falling apart at the seams. Well, the problem is you can't be light, the light of the world when you cut yourself off from the world. Some people isolate themselves culturally. They might live in our neighborhoods or subdivisions, but they maintain a separate cultural identity. They reject changes in culture that have nothing to do with godliness or the gospel. New styles and developments are, are guilty by association in their minds. An extreme example are the Hasidic Jews who walk through the streets of New York City in black hats and clothes like those, uh, like those of their ancestors from Eastern Europe. One of the problems with this approach is that you, be, you become more known for your old-fashioned ways than for Jesus Christ and his gospel. Some withdraw emotionally. They stop caring for the world around us. And when they see a man suffering the consequences of his sin, they say to themselves, it serves him right. He's getting what he deserves. But they forget that Psalm 103.10 says that God does not give our our sin, this, the, the, does not give us what our sins deserve. They forget the beatitude that says in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Emotional withdrawal is not an option for someone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people flee through nostalgia. They long for a gentler time when the world was supposedly less evil. Their hearts live in a photoshopped version of the past, often an airbrushed 19th century America. They imagine a golden age that never existed, a nation without slavery, the trail of tears, jayhawkers, the civil war, tuberculosis, smallpox, infant morality, or the financial panics of 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, and 1893. Sin has been in the world since the Garden of Eden. Evil men triumphed in David's day and in Christ's day. The world was wicked in the 1950s, and the world is wicked today. In his sovereignty, God, though, has placed us where he has need of us. And in the time he has to serve him in the place that he has appointed, 
and in the time that he has given to us. And so we, above, above all people, we cannot live in the past. Well, these are some of the ways Christians are tempted to flee when the foundations are shaken. These, these withdrawals, they seem to offer an escape, but they are come at the expense of the Great Commission and the influence of the gospel in our world. And worse, they imply that God is not able to protect us. Flight is a form of unbelief if it is a substitute for trusting God. David's, David rejected the counsel of despair. From David's temptation, we turn to David's foundation. David's friends made a serious mistake. The foundation that supported God's people was not destroyed. God is the foundation of his people and is their security forever. Moses, the man of God, said it well in Psalm 91 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, David focused his eyes on God in the second half of Psalm 11. God's personal name, Yahweh, is repeated emphatically four times in these verses. David's unflinching courage comes from knowing Yahweh, the Lord, and taking refuge in the Lord. Well, first, David affirms that God rules. He is the sovereign king over heaven and earth, Psalm 11, 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And when we see the word temple, we, we need to automatically think of Solomon's temple or Herod's magnificent temple that stood in Jerusalem during the time of Christ. But David here is not referring to an earthly temple. For one thing, Solomon's temple had not yet been built. The second half of this verse also makes it clear that the throne room David is thinking of is in heaven. In fact, the Hebrew word for temple is the same word as palace. God's palace is in heaven. Far above our puny courts and government buildings, his throne is a symbol of his authority to rule and to judge. And so no matter what's happening on earth, God is still in control. You see, when the foundations seem to be crumbling and when they're shaking, God is not frightened. Nothing happens in heaven above or on earth, around or in hell below, that God does not ordain and overrule. You see, God is in control. The very one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who Psalm 139 says fashioned you in your mother's womb. He is the one who is upholding this world by the word of his power, which, by the way, that also means something. He's upholding the cells of your body. After all, he's the one who gives you breath to continue to live. And by the way, he's also the one who knows the very hairs on your head, the, the thoughts that you think them before you're, you even think them, and the, the motivations of your heart. So yes, God knows everything. He is everywhere all at the same time. And from his throne, the Lord carefully watches the world of men. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man in verse 4. You see, the, the word see can be translated gaze or even scrutinize. God is paying attention. To paint a picture in our minds, David says his eyelids test us. That, that's an interesting expression. On the one hand, this suggests that God's attention never wavers. Even if his eyes seem closed, he is so perceptive that his eyelids still search the heart and the mind of men and women. Or David 
could be picturing God with his eyes narrowed like an appraiser carefully scrutinizing and evaluating an antique. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And when it seems like God is not doing anything, you can rest assured that he is carefully evaluating the life and the thinking and the thoughts of every single human being. He gives all men and women ample time to show who they are by their actions. Time reveals everything. You see, character is what you do in the dark when no one's watching. The wicked think that they can shoot unseen from the shadows and get away with it. God sees us late at night and it's secret. He watches our lives and he knows our hearts. Jesus himself looked in the heart of man during his earthly life. John writes that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man in John 2.25. And when John saw Christ exalted in his heavenly glory, he reports in Revelation 1.14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. All hearts are open before Christ, and all desires are known to him. And so when we stand before Christ, we stand before the God who sees. And from his throne, God judges the evil and the good. The righteous are not exempt from God's judgment. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous. But you see, God's examination is for their good. The verb test or examine in verse 5 refers to the process of proving or assaying precious metal. God tests the righteous to demonstrate to the world that they are genuine. This is the kind of testing that Job endured when God proved that Job truly loved him. This test related to the activity of a goldsmith purifying gold or silver. He heats it up and melts it to remove the impurities and refine it, making it even more precious than it was before. God refines the righteous with trouble and afflictions because he loves them and he wants to purify them and give them more of himself revealed in the word of God. And so the testing fire of God's judgment is devastating for the wicked, though. Psalm 11, 5-6 says, But his God's soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. God's innermost being detests the wicked and the violent. He is adamantly and eternally angry with everyone who does evil. And we shouldn't be surprised to read about God's anger. His wrath is a natural and a necessary part of his love. If God loves that which is good, beautiful, pure, and good, he must hate everything that is set against it. If you love your wife, you'll hate an intruder who enters your house to harm her while you're gone. If you're not furious at, at someone who hurts her, you obviously don't love her. In the same way, God's love for the righteous must be matched by his hatred for the wicked. And for this reason, it is God's glory to hate sin. He would be less than God if he was not a God of wrath. His love for his people would be a fraud without an equally passionate hatred for the wicked. God's judgment is not a fantasy. It's not a fiction. God has already rained down coals of fire and sulfur in human history when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19.24. The scriptures say that fiery judgment is coming again. The apostle Peter writes that the heavens and the earth below, or in the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destroy destruction of the ungodly, 2 Peter 3.7. 
God's judgment is delayed as he watches and weighs the world of men, but it is coming. And David ends with God's reward for those who are faithful to him. Psalm 11 verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. As the world shakes around us, we need to be sure that we continue to act justly because the Lord loves righteous deeds. And so if we flee, we lose our Christian influence in this world. The, the opposite danger is to become so much like the world that we lose our distinctive identity as Christians. We must remain a people to reflect God's character in our hearts and in our actions. Verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. His reward is for those who faithfully do what is right. God promises that those who trust him will see his face in verse 7. This is not going to be attractive to you if you do not love the Lord Jesus supremely. There is no motivation in seeing God if you do not delight in him and if you don't treasure him. But this is the highest possible reward for those. If if you can say to God, your steadfast love is better than life, Psalm 63, verse 3 says. We long to see his face because he is the desire of our souls. John 14, 3 says, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we see him as he is. If this is our confidence and our hope, we can stand firm. As, as the world goes from bad to worse, we'll not give in to the counsel of despair. God is the firm foundation for his people. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, th and let, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming Fire, dear friends, we are living in a time where it is easy to be afraid. It's easy to be shaken. It's easy to be stirred. It's easy to forget that God is really the one in charge. The response of our hearts, the posture of our hearts should be one, faith of confidence, not ourselves, but in the revealed will of God in the word of God. You see, all of these challenges that, that are facing our day, from the challenges in our schools to the, to the challenges in our workplaces, wherever we work, to, to maybe even challenges in our home, challenges in our economy, challenges in our political system. They all go back to Adam's disobedience in the garden. They all go back to the reality of sin in our world. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, and many people do ask it, is God asleep at the wheel? Is history just moving however it, it does, and behind it is nothing? It's just spinning out of control, and it seems like chaos is reigning. In a biblical worldview, the Christian answers that with a very strong answer of no. That history is not moving willy-nilly by itself. 
We believe that God is good and God is just and God is merciful. And yes, God is wrathful. God is just. He is holy. And this is why we, we, we believe in what the Bible says and what history records is that Christ, Christ came into our world in, in his birth. And he came under the sentence of death to pay our penalty in our place and for our sin. He is a sinless substitute. And he was buried and he rose again. And even now, he is, he is the high priest, the intercessor, the mediator of the new covenants for the people of God. And yet again, now that he has ascended, he is also our soon-returning king. He is going to come back and to judge the living and the dead. And to bring home, as John 14 tells us, his people that he went to prepare a place for. And so we live between the times. The time started when Jesus said in John 19.30, it is finished. And the times are yet future. That that time, we don't know when it will be. We live in between the times, between the already, which was inaugurated, began at the, the, birth, the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and is yet future when Christ will return to establish his millennial reign. And in between those times, we as Christians, we do not retreat to the mountains. We do not retreat to the trees. We do not hide in caves. We do not go and start monasteries. We do not go into rocky hills and rolling hills and hide and retreat from the world. We do not have holy huddles. We, as God's people, are called to be salt and light, to preach good news and glad tidings. Remember, I just described that this Savior and Lord, our King, came into the world as a baby. Under the sentence of death, to die as a sinless substitute in our place and for our sin. Christ, in his first sermon in Luke 4, in the synagogue, Luke 4 tells us, he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah 63 or 61, Isaiah 61 from Luke 4, and he preached that sermon. Freedom for the captives. Who was the one who preached it? Jesus. Fully God and fully man. He alone is the one who can bring freedom to our souls. He's the one who can help us to answer the question about evil in the world. About is God asleep at the wheel? Is God uninterested? Well, guess what? All those answers, they all meet in the life and the death and the resurrection, and the ascension, and in the soon return, eminent return of Christ. And the answer is, is, is loud and clear. God cares. God is interested. In fact, 
This is why Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us that, that because of the, the work, the person and the work of Christ, he cares. He understands everything that we are going through. And yet Hebrews 2, 17, or yeah, 2, 17 through 18 tells us he, he never sinned. He never sinned. That means that Christ is, is unlike us. We sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And yet Christ imputes his righteousness to our accounts. That means that he is tempted in every respect. He was tempted in every respect. And yet without sin, we are tempted and we sin. So we need to look to Christ. Hebrews 12 tells us that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. This is why 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then what does he say? In, verse, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, John says that Jesus is our advocate before the Father. So Jesus is our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our high priest. My friend, how much more needs to be said to convince you that, that the one who came into the world to pay the penalty for you, to rise again in your place and for your sin, the one who ascended to glory, the one who sent the Spirit in fulfillment of his teaching in John 14 through 17, and that, and that he's coming back. How much more does God have to show you that he cares for you? How much more does, does he have to show you that he cares for you? That he came and bled for you and died for you and laid down his life as a ransom for you so that you could be reconciled to God. How much more do you need? What other, what other sign what other thing do you need to trust the Lord? Well, the answer to that is nothing. Because everything, at every single point, Christ showed. He, he cared for his disciples. He cared for people. He, he performed miracles. He was there for the outcasts. He ministered to the hurting. He helped the struggling. He rebuked the religious leaders because they, they couldn't get it through their thick skull and they kept persecuting him. They stood opposed to his message. The very people who should have believed and should have received Christ rejected him. Humility goes a long way in our lives, friends. It begins by recognizing who God is and who we really are. As sinners in need of the mercy of Christ, you want to not be fearful. You want to not be uh, anxious and uh, stressed out about what's happening in our culture. You want to have a firm understanding of, of God's providence. Open the word of God. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Do life with God's people. Talk about with your spouse. Talk with other strong Christians about the world, the, the, the Bible, and talk about our world. Work through issues. 
minister to people with the word of God. Our best, our, our best way of ministering to people is to take them back to the word of God. In fact, Paul says in, in 2 Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of love and of sound mind. And isn't that interesting that one of the fruits of the spirit is love? And one of the things that Paul says to Timothy that God has given him is, is love. And, and at the very head of, of the almost every virtue list of things that define and shape what a Christian is to be is love. We see it in Galatians 5.22. Love is at the, the, the very head of the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit are things that the Holy Spirit himself, through the Word of God, is producing in us love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, self-control. You, you know, and, and by the way, if you look up in, in, in Galatians 5, just before he gives the, the list of vices and then the fruit of the Spirit, he says that you can have, there's no, and, and even after, there's, there's no law against having as much of the fruit of the Spirit as you can handle. There's no law against it. Why? Because God, by the Spirit, wants to use the Word in your life to produce the fruits of the spirits, because these fruits are to characterize who we are because we're in Christ. These fruits are to characterize our lives. They're to characterize our development, our character. They're to define and give shape. And then they're to define and give shape to our witness. So no, we, we should not be shaken. We should not be moved. We, as the Bible clearly says from cover to cover, we have a God who cares. He, uh, we have a God who sees. We have a God who knows. We have a God who understands. And so we, above all people, must Look to Christ. We should not be fearful about what's happening in our world because we know the end of the story. The world is going to go its own way. We are not to become like the world. We are to become more like Christ so that we can reflect the fruits of the Spirit and the power of Christ for a world that is perishing. What people need to see is our godliness. They need to see the fruits of the Spirit being worked out in our lives personally. They need to see the fruits of the Spirit being worked out in our marriages. They, they need to see the fruit of the Spirit at work in our churches. If you're in ministry, they need to, people need to see your life being marked out by the fruits of the Spirit. And we have to ask a, I have to ask a question as we wrap this up. Is your life and whatever your vocation, whatever your job is, whatever God has placed you, the question is this, is your life being marked and shaped by an increasing desire to conform your life to Christ? And how, how much of the fruits of the Spirit define and give shape to your life? I want you to think about that this week as, as you wrestle with, uh, with God's word, as you look at your life. If there's areas that 
dishonor God. I, I plead with you to repent. And don't make don't just turn aside and say, you know what? These are these are for another day. The Bible tells us that now is the day of salvation. Now is the hour. Don't just, even if you're a Christian, don't just look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? It doesn't matter. No, if you believed and you tasted of the, the goodness of God in Christ, you can never go back to the to the fault to the world. You should not long for the world. You should not desire the world. You should hate your sin because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to repent and to trust in the in the goodness of God in Christ. He offers you more than, than what the world could ever offer. And by the way, he said, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has set eternity on your hearts. And so would you repent and believe and trust in Christ? Dear Christian, I pray that you'll know the goodness of God and the grace of God and that you'll trust him more and that you'll value him uh, who is of supreme value and worth and that you'll love him more that you'll serve him and that you'll obey him by the grace of god through the indwelling work of the spirit in your life let's pray father where there is so many things in our world today we can be fearful of we can be fearful of courts handing down decisions fearful of politicians saying things of other, other countries doing things and causing wars and rumors of wars, which Jesus spoke of as well. But Lord, behind all of history, you are in control. You are sovereign. You are orchestrating good out of, of, of our sin, chaos, out of the chaos. You bring forth glory. The glory of bringing people to faith in your name, through the preaching of your word, through the, through the work of your spirits. Lord, you're even upholding and strengthening your church in, these, in this hour. You're even using men and women to be instruments, to be disciples of you. Granted, if they're faithful to you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen your church. Help us, Lord, to, to abandon worldliness, to abandon apathy, to abandon fear. Help us to cling to you, to trust you. You're utterly sufficient, and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.